Welcome to Jesse War Radio. Jesse War Radio is dedicated to peering behind the veil of esoteric iconology and symbolism and is available from jessiewar.com. Each week we interview authors, historians, thinkers and artists in an effort to discern the truth behind symbols, myths, icons and allegories. New episodes are posted every Friday. Members of Jesse War Radio gain access to the second hour of every show. Find out more about becoming a supporting member of Jesse War Radio by clicking on the subscribe link in the top navigation menu at jessiewar.com. Thank you for tuning in. Gavin Kearney is a well-known exponent of responsible aesthetics in art. Gavin's paintings range from portraiture, landscapes, and group scenes to metaphysical and symbolically infused otherworldly fantasies. Born in Cork, Ireland, Gavin relocated to London in the early 90s, where he took a degree in fine arts with a minor in sonic arts. Gavin is also a musician and has been writing, recording, and releasing music under the moniker Sand Snowman since 2005. During hour one of our interview with Gavin Kearney, he gives us an overview of his background, influences, and valuable art theories. After that, in hour two, he elucidates the actuality of modern anti-aesthetics, explaining what brought about the ugliness that was so widely promoted by the art industry in the 20th century. Hi, Gavin Kearney. How are you doing? Thanks very much for coming on to the show today. My pleasure, Jesse. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. What I'd like to ask you first is, uh, can you give us a bit of your background? Um, Obviously, you're an artist, and I'm going to be putting up a lot of your work on the uh, blog post page so that people can see your work. What's your background in terms of art? Um, Well, I mean, my mom is an artist, so um, I mean, I was drawing uh, before I could read or write, probably. Uh, It was just something I grew up with and something that I always did. Um, I don't know whether I actually kind of any stage decided I wanted to be an artist. I, I didn't really feel I had much of a decision making kind of ability with it. It, just, it was just something that was always around me. And it was never really a kind of a question of me doing anything else with my life other than maybe music. So I was always just going to do uh, music and art as my kind of primary vocation. Um, so it was like, kind of, I didn't have a kind of eureka moment. It's sort of kind of like it was something that I was seeped in or marinated in from when I was born. Wow. Okay. So, and your father was supportive of that as well? Well, yes, yes. I mean, it, it, my, my parents, I mean, my parents worked in factories. They weren't uh, educated people in the sense of like formally educated. They were probably a lot better educated than most people who go through the university system these days. Um, yeah, I believe that. Because <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they, they, they would actually read books, for example. Yeah. <laughs> a strange novel idea, you know, and they weren't brainwashed and they uh, would uh, they would have encouraged me to think for myself. Um, I mean, yeah, my, my dad was, um, yeah, my, my dad was a musician as well, but they were both amateur in the sense that uh, it wasn't their, it wasn't a profession for them. It was something, they, they worked in factories, they raised their kids and it was just something that we did. It, it was that it was that was my home life, and that's kind of what I was surrounded by. And you're from you're from Cork in Ireland. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I lived in Cork for a while. Did you really? I did. Yeah, yeah. It's a oh, lovely straight. place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereabouts were you? Right on the on the keys, like right in the middle of town. You know. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah that's superb. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, do you think that this lent, lends itself towards? The, your ability to have cultivated yourself in terms of aesthetics that you obviously have done 
Very much so. Very much so. Because uh, it didn't seem to, like, like I said, it's because it was something that, that I was seeped in. And I was perhaps encouraged to, I mean, both of my parents were kind of very, very supportive of the idea that you question the mainstream, that you question everything, that uh, don't take things for granted and rely upon your own perceptions where possible. Also, as well, you see, because it was very much, it was very, very much a kind of a private uh, culture for me, music and art. They were very, very much um, a world I would go into on my own. And I would say it's, it's, that's a very, very important point if you're going to develop a personal aesthetic, particularly one that goes against the grain. I would say for most people, most of their kind of cultural experiences tend to come in some way in a collective experience. Like, say, for example, a gig they might go to, a club, a particular scene that they might be involved in, that kind of thing. Or, a, a, you know, a college experience, that sort of thing. Whereas for me, because the kind of music I was listening to when I was a kid, it wasn't really the stuff that was around in the mainstream at the time and it wasn't the kind of stuff that my schoolmates were listening to i very quickly developed a, a pattern of just relying upon a, a kind of a kind of inner sense of references and that became far more powerful and far more important to me than any outer sense of references so the consensus or the importance of the consensus was from the get-go very weak with me it didn't particularly matter what the, what the collective was saying um i think that that can really well it can be it can be difficult in the sense that it can isolate you you can find it very, very difficult to make the transition from this very private personal culture and very personal set of references into sharing them with others and helping others to see where you're coming from. But at the same time, you're, you're going to be a lot more skeptical and you'll, you'll spot the bullshit a mile away. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so not, not to pigeonhole you personally, but what is it about, especially Irish culture, but also just British Isles in general, definitely including England, that there's there's some sort of um, appreciation for beauty and some sort of deep understanding of what beauty is and its and its importance. You know, you have these aesthetes. Obviously, Oscar Wilde's the one that we would think of first, but yeah. there are other ones too. I mean, I mean, even like someone like Morrissey. You know, he he yeah. conveys that same thing too. So, where is that coming from? That's it's really fascinating to me. It's a curious perspective, actually, Jesse, because I never thought of that in terms of being something specific to the British Isles, like say to like say Ireland and Britain. Um, but I would say a lot of it could be to do with the melancholy of the seasons and the landscape itself, that there's something probably because we're we're in we're islands, we're on or we 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 live on islands, there's a sense of kind of being part of the larger culture, say Europe, but not quite part of it. And there's this, there's this a certain kind of um, introspection that comes with that. I mean, I, I would, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Oscar Wilde because particularly in the kind of realms of, say, the symbolist movement and the 19th century art that I'm very much interested in, a lot of that was informed by um, French, the, the, the French culture. But interestingly enough, apparently Oscar Wilde, who, you know, was very, obviously because he was very, very kind of, um, he was from an upper middle class background and very well spoken and educated in England. But apparently when he spoke French, he had a very strong Dublin accent, which is quite curious. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, it, just, it just seems like there's something um, special to, about, and it, it does seem to be concentrated in, in Ireland, especially, and it might have something to do with the Celts. I suppose it must. Um, but, yeah. But, but then it's kind of unique to the Celts in the British Isles as opposed to Celts elsewhere. So yes. it's, it's really 
Beautiful. And, and in contrast, I would contrast like Italian, uh, the Italian sense of beauty, which is more sort of, uh, let's say, magnificent, grandiose, colorful even, you know, and it's, yes. it's, it's equally strong, but I don't think it's necessarily as essential. It's like not as distilled. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, again, you see, because this could be because... Um, because I'm, I'm obviously I'm from Ireland and I've lived in uh, England like for the last sort of 26 years. It could be that it's I'm just a bit too close to it to be able to objectively see see that quality as clearly as you would. Because sometimes it's it's from an outside perspective we're able to appreciate these things. I could, probably wouldn't be able to see the wood for the trees in that sense. Um, but it's an interesting perspective, and it's something that actually I, I might go in into a bit more really. Yeah, I th- I think it's I think you're right. I think I'm from California, so I and I lived in, I lived in England for 11 years, and then I also lived in Italy too. I'm in I'm in Spain now. Oh wow! But um, so yeah, I've been able to see it from the outside, and I and it's something I appreciate so deeply. You know what I mean? Yeah. And all the problems with English culture, otherwise that I might have, kind of just pale in comparison to that beauty that you yeah. can find in in the countryside in the British Isles. It's just absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, so, so your paintings, uh, would you categorize your paintings as symbolist or would you also categorize them as like aesthetic paintings, aestheticist paintings? Possibly a little bit of both. I know that that might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but the aesthetic quality is very, very important. But um, as, as, of course, is the symbolist quality. I mean, symbolism is an interesting one in that uh, my own personal belief is that symbolism is a kind of a constant and universal strain and what i mean by a particular form of symbolism where the object or the subject isn't um it, it's not just an observation of a thing it, it suggests something else there's something behind it there's this, an extra significance and this is evidenced for me in a lot of indigenous um, native and tribal art if you think of say um Native American totem poles, say, or the Book of Kells from the Irish uh, monks, uh, West African sculptured masks, and so forth, Egyptian hieroglyphics. There is what you often have as a kind of an, um, is it anamorphic, is that the term, where you have, like, say, one creature... Anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic, that's the one, thank you. Where you have one creature morphing into another, and they're not just, they're not kind of, like, say, straightforward representations of a creature. They seem to be employed for the for a kind of like an extra significance that the creature evokes, and this to me ties in with the the idea of the nuance and the suggestion that's very very strong in symbolist uh, symbolist poetry uh, as well as symbolist music and painting, and as well for me, it, I I like it because it 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 argues against the standard issue kind of history or you know history of art interpretation of like photography came along and then all of a sudden there was this great gulf between the representational and the abstract. There was always, and always has been, and universally, I would say, an abstract, an abstract element in all art. It's never been purely to try to record the world as we see it, because we can't really do that. Well, certainly can't do it with static art form like painting, because the eye moves so much and takes in so much peripheral information. But to me, the, one of the lures of symbolism is that it has a universal quality, it has a timeless quality. Um, there isn't a kind of, like, say, a standard... I mean, you can say that there's a certain kind of, like, you know, maybe, say, Gustave Moreau might be a kind of a quintessential symbolist, but to somebody else, you know, it might be Clint. 
there isn't, as you have, like, say, with, say, surrealism or cubism, a kind of a standard identified aesthetic. Symbolism seems to be far, far more open-ended. And in fact, as well, that it was an international movement, that you had symbolist events in France, in Russia, in England, um, in Holland. It, it wasn't confined. It wasn't, it wasn't confined to a clique, kind of like, say, the usual, kind of like, say, where you'd have... Um, you know, a poet who would write a manifesto, publish the manifesto, and you'd have a series of critics and gallery supporters and artists who would consolidate that. It seemed to be far, far more open, undefined, more nuanced, and more universal than that. So the lure of symbolism for me is very strong. I'm reading a book right now, and he says that symbolism had to have, had to, had to have grown up in a Catholic context. Yeah. Do, what do you think about that? Have you, have you thought about the Catholic sort of um, relationship to symbolism? It is, an it is an interesting point because one of the things that really interests me about the symbolist milieu and the, the late 19th century art movement, particularly, um, like say, as you'd see in France, was the, um, I mean, it seems to me that a lot of it was a kind of like a direct reaction against the, the materialist or kind of like say the enlightenment values that had been prevalent for the previous 200 years or 100 or 200 years the triumph of industrialization and this very, very materialist view of the world that seemed to be divesting it of its mystery and its ritual and its magic. And the emergence of sim the simplest movement coincided with the emergence of um, a lot of spiritual or occult leanings and searchings like, say, um, theosophy, the, the leaning, the inclination towards Eastern practices, Satanism, uh, mystical Catholicism, spiritualism, a lot of these things happened. And you can definitely see with kind of, um, with a lot of the kind of heady, more kind of romantic, intoxicating qualities of symbolism, a lot of that would have come from the kind of the, the opulence, perhaps, of the Catholic right. If you think of, like, say, how the, compare, like, say, the, the Catholic churches and the Catholic right to the Puritan ethic, which kind of removed, hated the, the iconography, would destroy kind of like, say, um, icons and things like that. So everything was very, very stripped down. So you can definitely see this, this very, very heady, if you think as well of like, say, the, 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 the lure of the right, of the ritual, of kind of like, say, going into a state of becoming something else, that again ties into the quality of the suggestion, the suggestive, the, 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 phenomena of being in one place and transforming into another place. And that's, again, like what I would kind of like say, find attractive about symbolism, that it's not, it's not kind of like, say, rigorously defined. But it is interesting that it did seem to thrive in not just Catholic countries, but also kind of like, say, in Russia, where the, there is the Eastern, the, the, the Russian Orthodox rite, which is equally kind of opulent and mystical and musical and um, heady. And that kind of ties into what you were saying about decadence in, in your Kent Freedom Movement uh, video, yeah, which is entitled The State of the Art and the Death of Cool. And what, yeah. what were you saying about decadence and how it would compare to our contemporary notion of what decadence is? Well, the, the notion of the decadent with the, um, say, with, with the simplest or with the, the 19th century um, I, th I think I was talking about um, uh, what's his name, J.K. some of J.K. Heisman's writings, as well as uh, the picture Dorian Gray, and the decadent um, would be the person who st stands outside. Firstly, 
is at an, at a, an angle to utilitarianism, to the cult of utility, of having a purposeful existence. You know, the, the archetypal kind of Protestant work ethic, the Calvinist thing of like being productive. So this would tie in too very much with the kind of like, say, a more sensual, um, observant um, orientation. The decadent would feel at one alienated, at once alienated from a very materialist, productive, uh, value-based system. But at the same time, would feel elect, would feel above or beyond the kind of like, say, the morality and the judgments of ordinary people. There's a certain kind of, on the low side, there's a very kind of aristocratic, haughty disdain in the cult of the decadent. But there's also the sense that the decadent is haunted by what is lost, perhaps innocence, or a, a notion of beauty that cannot, that you can't actually capture, that it overwhelms you, and the, the gulf between the ideal and what you can actually attain is kind of crushing in a way. It's very, very heady. It's very intoxicating. It's very attractive. It is also something perhaps that you might want to respect, but keep a healthy, um, not so much a leash upon, but you don't want to allow it to overcome you and overtake you because it can, it can be, as with the kind of like, say, protagonists of the picture of Dorian Gray, with Dorian Gray and with um, J.K. Heisman's character in, uh, in uh, Arobor against the grain or against nature. Um, where he's no longer able to live, he's no longer able to function because his senses have been completely and utterly annihilated by trying to go after this impossible ideal of beauty and of um, sensual pleasure. And you mentioned um, also the, the cult of personality, how that's risen up since the Renaissance to become something in the 20th century where the, where the artist like Picasso is more important than his work. And, yes. Um, I've thought that that might actually be sort of like an apotheosis, perhaps a Masonic apotheosis, where um, man is risen to God status. And then like you have that David Bowie song, God and Man, right? And, yeah. Or whatever that's called, Modern Love. And um, yeah. so do you think that that's actually a symptom or perhaps even the, the primary purpose of sort of this Masonic push away and against, uh, against the Catholic Church? I can't actually speak about that, to be honest with you, Jesse, because I don't know enough about it. I don't know enough about the, like, say, for example, the Masonic angle and, say, the pull away from um, larger organized religions. I, I can't really say. But it does seem to me that the cult of personality, the idea of, like, the, the overman or the idea of, like, the great man, the men of destiny, the Napoleonic or Beethoven kind of, like, romantic hero, that... We can see it's very, very attractive. And in a way, the, the, the idea of, like, say, this, the, the cult of the, the personality that who kind of like distinguishes themselves, they, they can be a shining light, a beacon to which others can aspire to this, this greatness. But unfortunately, it doesn't work out that way, not in the world that we're living in. The cult of personality is where you have, like, say, somebody like Picasso, who, you know, certainly you don't know whether he's taking the piss or... Um, you know, well, he certainly, to me, I think he was taking the piss. I mean, there's a famous story about um, he was at dinner somewhere and um, somebody asked him, what's it like being successful? Uh, or what's it like being Picasso now? And Picasso said, uh, have you got a franc note? Uh, so he takes his franc note, scribbles on it, he says, that franc is not worth, not worth a thousand francs. That's what it's like to be Picasso. So there's a kind of, um, 
there's this horrible thing that just because somebody is noted or somebody has reached a stature that that we'll give it a license, that we'll take it with an imp, we'll give it a kind of like a a sense of um, gravity that we wouldn't otherwise. Objectively, we'd look at it and say, no, this is this is ridiculous. But this is this would tie in with what you talk about with the loss of kind of like say the attack upon objective standards of say beauty and of craft. Uh, So if the personality, because the personality itself is so powerful that they can kind of like say disregard or, or kind of like say our own common sense as well as our own sense of beauty. Yeah. And like, for example, Michelangelo, um, I mean, to, to what extent was, did he have a cult of personality in his time? I mean, he was famous, but it, the art was, a, the art was about the art. It wasn't necessarily about him per se. Yes. And then you have Caravaggio who's named after Michelangelo the next century or whatever. And he was definitely a cult of personality, although he produced, uh, you know, arguably valuable art as well. Yeah. And then yeah. It, it just got, it seems to continue on down through the centuries where the artist becomes more and more important. But then you have what, what's William Blake, right? William Blake was obviously completely devotional in, in the production of his art. So his, yes. his persona didn't really, he didn't, I don't think he celebrated his own persona or wanted it to have anything to do with the value of his art. No, it doesn't appear that way. He, he, he actually does appear to be quite, um, to be moved by the transcendent and to be looking beyond himself all the time, which is probably why, in a, in a way, he's one of these artists who seems to touch people quite deeply because it isn't about his ego, it isn't about his experience. And he seems to be, you know, even though, I, I mean, I, I will admit I'm not actually a, a fan of his, his, of his art. Yeah, I'm not either, but, yeah. Mm. yeah but, but I admire the... I admire the striving there, and I admire this. There's a kind of a, a purity in his vision. Right. And there is also this sense that he is pointing, saying, look, it's there, heaven in a wildflower. It's, it's there. It's there for you to see it. Heaven is right in front of you, or beauty. And the infinite is there for you to behold, if you so wish to. This is very wonderful and inspiring. Um, but the, the interesting thing is how the cult of personality, I think, has devolved into this which it always would. It, always, it was always going to be this way, you know, particularly in, in kind of like, say, an increasingly sped up soundbite culture. It was always going to devolve into this, this unbelievably shallow mess, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, and now, and now what we have is we have basically everyone's famous. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, everyone, and everyone's, as you see, I, I don't know, you see, I, I, I don't want to, sometimes I kind of like say, I think, well, no, you're just being a little bit harsh on people. I mean, I, I, I first find like a lot of social media absolutely bewildering. And I, I sometimes think, well, is it, is it my, because of the generation I'm not, but it isn't because... Wait, so, so what do you have, what do you find bewildering? It cut out. The, the, I'm sorry, the, well, like say, the, the whole idea of selfies. Yeah. The idea, like taking a, I mean, I don't know, you see, to me, a, a photo, there are some things that you don't do on your own. And if you do them on your own, you maybe you don't really want to broadcast them. Photographing yourself—I mean, you're, you get photographed by a person, and it's a commemoration of a particular event, rather than a commemoration of yourself pulling a funny face. I mean, I don't know. That's just me. Maybe it's just that I—you I, know—but of course, everyone's done it. We've all done. We've all taken pictures of ourselves and photoshopped it and added some shadow to make ourselves look dramatic or something like that. <laughs> but, but it is the—but it is the way of the narcissist. It is the way of the—you know—it it is the way of. It is kind of, and that there's nothing wrong with that up to a point. But when it becomes the accepted gold standard of kind of social interaction, and I have absolutely have to take a picture of what I'm eating here, I have to show people the glass of beer on my table. 
I'm sharing it. You see, I'm, I'm so generous with my, with my life. I have to share this. But of course, I feel like absolute shit unless people press like because I'm not validated. Yeah. And this is, you know, and this is the, the insidious thing about this. Because I don't, you know, people by all means take pictures of yourselves, pose away, fine, absolutely fantastic. That's grand. But what I have a problem with is how it modifies our sense of self. That it's, this is purely a way that we validate ourselves, that we don't get those likes. We're not getting that hit with that. Well, that's it. We're, we're, we're nothing. You're nowhere. And in that, we're in, we are acting in imitation of, you know, Car- Kim Kardashian or Simon Cowell or one of these soulless ghouls who, you know, I don't even watch TV and I know who these creatures are. Yeah, right, you know, right. You can't get away from no, these No, you fuckers. can't, no, no. You know, <laughs> you know, believe me, I've tried. I bury my head in the sand. I do. And, if, you know, you still hear about these creatures. They're sw- they're... So in a way, actually, I've got to say this too as well, Jesse, there's, I don't entirely buy the idea that the public get what they want. In many ways, the public don't have a fucking choice because you can't hide from this shit. It's everywhere. It's absolutely insidious. And sure, you know, people kind of, yeah, the responsibility begins and ends with the, the individual. They don't have to watch a lot of old rubbish. They can go to the library. They can get a book, you know. But at the same time, it's very, very hard not to be influenced by this insidious, shallow, corrosive culture. Yeah. And what do you think, how do you think that this kind of culture is going to affect aesthetics? I actually think that it could be the, it could, it could actually facilitate a tipping point because, because, uh, you know, going back to like, say the, the symbolists and the the 19th century kind of emergence or or re-emergence of this um, spiritual searching, people had been given, people had been given kind of like, say the enlightenment values, people had been given reason, people had been given a kind of an understanding of how the world in a, from a scientific understanding or a scientific context, how it has come into being and how do people respond? People respond by looking elsewhere because it's innate in us for, to look, to look for a deeper meaning. And I'm not saying that the scientific view of the world or reality is invalid. It's a process like everything else. But it's innate in us to, learn, to look for something more, to actually look for some kind of significance, some kind of meaning that's a little bit deeper. So when inundated with this absolute garbage, which I actually, to be honest with you, I don't think everybody buys into. I think that it's, you know, it's, again, it's something that's voiced largely upon people. It has an influence, definitely. It influences our behavior. It influences so kind of we, like say, how we might tilt towards narcissism or we might tilt towards shallowness. But I think that the response could well be some kind of emergence of, um, of, I don't know, a kind of, let's say, a deeper or more questioning culture. I mean, the interesting thing is I find that when I talk to people who are a generation younger than me, they're a hell of a lot less naive than I was when I was their age. They have a, they're a lot more aware of how things are controlled and how things are marketed and how they are essentially kind of like, say, they are targeted with kind of like, say, all manner of ideologies and all manner of things like that. In a way that, you know, when I was in my kind of early 20s, I just, you know, I, I took it as a given. I took it as a given that, you, you know, if you're a left wing, you read The Guardian. If you're a right wing, you read Daily Mail. And that was it. And that was a, a realistic representation of reality. But do you, do you think that that kind of already happened in the 80s with the n- neo-romantics and the new wave, people kind of becoming alternative, Depeche Mode, breaking off from pop cult, from pop music? Again, I think that it's, it's, it's a quality that just doesn't kind of go away. And it always, it always kind of survives and it'll come around again. I mean, that was something that was very much in the, well, to begin with, I suppose, in the pop 
arena, and certainly in the arena of like pop culture. But again, you know, that was some of that, just some of it, was a response to um, the kind of the back to basics, first principles thing of, of punk, where there was kind of like, say, there was nothing flurry, there was nothing kind of like airy fairy. This is all very fast and kind of immediate. So how did people respond? You had like kind of post-punk mu- music, which became slow and introspective and quite heavy. And then you had, um, like say, kind of in the more pop side, you had neuromanticism. The desire for people to be peacocks, the desire for people to dress up and, you know, flaunt something or be something, become something more than what they felt that the hands of life had dealt them. Again, that in itself, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I like to see that. I like to see people looking beyond, looking beyond what it is, where they are, or who they are, and finding out more about them, what they could be. And getting back to the cult of personality idea, um, how would that be applied to Oscar Wilde? The, well, <clears throat> very, very much so. I mean, the thing is, I'm a great admirer of him, but <clears throat> it's, it's highly unlikely that we would be aware of him purely on his literary merits if it wasn't actually for his personality, if it wasn't for the fact that he was a a brilliant self-promoter and enviably fantastic at getting attention for himself, but not appearing to go after it, which is the thing. You see, it didn't have the the air of desperation that so many people have when they're trying to get attention. He was able to do it with panache and uh, also as well because he was very, very, very bright and very, very funny. But undoubtedly, he was a product of the cult of personality. He was one of the major paragons. It's, it's just that he, in my opinion at least, had the talent and had the humanity and uh, the charm to be able to, to, to make it worthwhile. And he, he parodied it as well, didn't he? I mean, with, very with all so. of his, you know, wittiness, you know. Yes, yeah. very, very much so. Yeah, that, that's it. I mean, he was, the interesting thing is he used the kind of a facade. Well, he, he himself said, give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And he used the facade of being this flippant, um, very, very shallow being to actually kind of like hide who I, I, I don't think he was remotely shallow. He himself said the supreme vice is shallowness. I think he was actually a very, very, and even in his lightest, most frivolous and playful writings and uh, witticisms and epigrams, there's, there's usually a, a profundity. There's often a sadness. There's a very, very, there's a very, very deep soul there. Yeah, and that, that seems to me to be quintessentially British or Celtic or Irish. What is, what is it um, that you're attempting to achieve with your paintings? Because they're, they seem to be overtly uh, symbolist and aiming towards beauty and aesthetics. And also, they, ha- they seem to exhibit a sort of dreamlike quality. I think you've pretty much nailed it there, Jesse. I don't really know what else I could say. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm aiming for, really. Really, I, I mean, the, probably the main, the main thing is I... I I like the, the kind of paintings I like looking at. I like looking at magical worlds where, where one is thinking beyond the edges of the painting of what, might, what else might be going on there and how people have arrived or beings arrived at that point. And, you know, I don't really know what else I could say. I think you pretty much nailed it there. What do you think, for example, Odilon Redon was attempting to achieve with his paintings? I wouldn't dare say, to be honest. I wouldn't dare say. But, um, I wouldn't dare say as well because I admire them immensely. Yeah. Uh, and, and as well, it's kind of, you know, sometimes when you kind of internalize your, in, or not so much the things that influence you, but things that move you, you internalize them because they, they seem to resonate and speak to a profound part of yourself. And there's a part to me as well that doesn't, would be very, very reluctant to verbalize a lot of these things. I know that that might sound like a terrible cop out, but again, there's, there's this, 
there's a part of me that doesn't actually want to know, and there's a part of me that likes the idea of just being a, a vessel for for other forces or other information to bypass the the kind of the the intellectual faculties. Right, right. And is is flight from reason a, a part of what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Very much so. No, the reason is fine. Reason is dandy and reason, reason is tickety-boo. But, I mean, art is something else entirely. And um, I'm with, um, God, what was his name? Um, the Sar Paladin, that, that, uh, that character from, uh, he was around the French symbolist milieu. Right, right. And he, he did the Salon de la the Rose. Rose Croix, yeah. That's right, yeah. And he said to, his mission was to ruin realism. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but uh, I, I could see kind of where he's coming from because, you know, we have, we have art as an antidote to real life. We have enough real life. We have plenty. We have real life coming out of our every orifice. Okay, that's that's it. We have plenty of real life, and I'm not dismissing real life, and I'm not dismissing the the material and scientific wonders of the world. They're brilliant. They're great. But for me, art is something else. Art is about what isn't there. Art is about what is suggested. Um, art is this kind of. Um, I, I, I can't quote it, but uh, the composer Claude Debussy beautifully described music as being the mysterious correspondences between nature and the imagination. And he described the kind of like, say, the rays of the moon and the perfumes of the night and all of these fleeting sensations that they're overwhelming. But art gives us an opportunity of giving them form, giving them a context that they become a tangible thing that we try to infuse all of those feelings, all those fleeting lost moments into something, into one definite form, be it like, say, a piece of music or a poem or a painting or something like that. And that, that to me is, uh, you know, we're living, in the, we're living in the real world. That's absolutely fine. It's, I'm not denigrating that. I'm not, saying it's, I'm not saying as well it's completely invalid in the realms of art. But for me, there's, there's so much other stuff. Well, there just isn't room for that with art because there's all these indefinable, strange, mysterious half memories and half imagined things, all these phenomena, all these other things to be translated into the medium of art. Now, a cynic would accuse you of being escapist, of advocating escapism. But from what you're saying, it sounds to me like you're describing something much more exalted and beautiful yes, and important than this in pure escapism. Absolutely. And you know what? Escapism, well, most of our pleasures, most of our, most of our, yeah, most of our leisures and pleasures are escapism. You know, we're, we're trying to escape from the, just kind of like, say, the, the, a bestial reality of, a, I think it was, it was Hobbes who said, life is short and brutish. We're not here for very long. And so much of our life is taken up with tedious, boring rubbish like school and work and, you know, and, and you know, the, the boring everyday, having to go shopping, having to cook, having to go to the toilet, things that you just, you just you, there's no getting away from. They take up so much time, time that you'd much rather spend looking at clothes or something like that. We're always looking for escape. You see, one man's escapism is another man's transcendence. It's a question of kind of, it's a question of really uh, how much you accept this very, very human need. And that, that stance that you're taking on that seems to fly in the face of this current sort of barrage of nightmarish um, discouragement and demoralization that the media is hurling at us. I should hope so. I should hope so, because if you're not kicking against something, there's no point. There's no, absolutely no point of contributing to the drift. There's really no point. It has to be, there has to be some, I mean, ultimately you do what you do anyway. But I mean, if, if kind of, if I was seeing around me and hearing around me evidence of 
the, the things that move me and I love, well, I just wouldn't bother. So that's great that somebody else is doing it. I can just get on with living. That's fine. You know, um, and yes, I've, you know, the, again, going into that, that, that place of taking a kind of an exalted view of art, I feel that it's, I, 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 don't, I don't just do it just to kind of like say pass the time. It's, I do it because it is some kind of a fight back. And it's not a question of kind of imposing one's work and oneself upon public. But by, by the very act of doing it, you're not conforming. By the very act of doing it, you're like um, Winston Smith in 1984 writing in his diary in the corner. You're saying that two and two isn't five, it's two and two is four. By the very act of doing it, you're, you're kind of evidence that this bar- barrage of bullshit is nothing and it will pass. So then you become an enemy of the state by doing that? Absolutely. I'd hope so. <laughs> um, and... Uh, okay, so I just went through a, a master's program at Fine Art at the University of Brighton, and they yeah. just absolutely hated my advocation of beauty as the purpose of art. And I call well, it—I right. call it pulchrism. That's my yes. my name for it. The movement, you know. Yes. They just complete. They, it was like it was. There was almost. I'm not kidding. There were almost like demonic forces manifesting in certain students, like oh, yeah. in opposition to me saying no, beauty should be the purpose of art. Yes, yeah. Have you, you experienced things, anything like that? Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, my degree, which I did, um, that I, I, can't, I, I actually can't even remember when I finished it. I think it was about 10 years ago I finished my degree, maybe 11 years ago now. I've wiped it from memory. It was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> ghastly, Horrible. Yeah, the same, the same sort of thing. Well, you had, the, you had the, you see, first of all, you'd get the kind of, like, say, the, the calm, disdain kind of, but don't you think this has all been kind of done? Stuff like that. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And people kind of like, say, exhibiting peace wars and like pulling things out of their bums. That hasn't been done a thousand times already. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So when you start to question that, they really, they get very, very hostile. And you see, because you're questioning their, their world. And this is a very, very interesting thing to ponder. And actually, we look at kind of like, say, the, the state of the arts and, and culture generally. Most people tend to, most people won't kick against the drift. Most people will go along with it. And what we've had since, kind of like, so I'd say since um, Duchamp's uh, Peace War, whenever that was, the 1920s or something, I can't, I, I really don't know. 1915 um, or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's over 100 years. It's, if you look in the history of art, it usually takes a very, very, very long time for people to actually kind of like say, let go and say, oh, actually, you know what? Things have actually moved on from that. So, what we're looking at with the ongoing, tedious, predictable, boring, ugly kind of aesthetic, anti-aesthetic and anti <laughs> what we're actually looking at, not only are we looking at kind of like, say, the, the increasingly pathetic shock value thing, because, oh, oh, do I shock you? Oh, oh, you're a prude then. And of course, you can't be a prude, so you can't pretend to be shocked. You can say, well, kind of, well, no, no, I find it interesting, actually, you know. But of course, you don't find it interesting. You're indifferent to it, or else you hate it. You know, but it's, it's a certain amount of it is the kind of cliched, being shocking, kind of daring. Oh, this gets tongues wagging. You know, it, it's it, and it's flogging a dead horse because the public is so zapped and whacked by ugliness and violence and pornography that you you have to turn up actually on doorstep and get them in the balls to elicit any kind of real response. It's not going to. Yeah, it's shocking for two minutes and then everybody forgets about. It. But more than anything, I actually think it's a kind of a, it's a conformity to that's the program that they know. This is what they actually think art is. This is what they think art is about. And they're not actually going to look beyond that. See, we don't tend to question these things. 
just look through, you know, get anybody who's in their 30s, 40s or 50s and look through their pictures, like say, like photos for like the passing decades and see how their clothing changes, you know, and you might get them there saying, I can't believe I used to dress like that. I used to think I was so cool. (laughs) Well, what changed, you idiot? What changed? (laughs) What changed? What changed? Exactly. The unseeing arbiters of cool deemed and yay, you shall wear flared trousers now. No, you should no longer wear flared trousers. You should squeeze yourself into skinny jeans, you know, and people don't question it. People go along with it, you know, so, and I'm not blaming people. It's just that it's very, very difficult to resist the drift. You know, it's very, very difficult to kind of like, say, be in opposition to that. You know, people feel as well, oh, I've got to move on, you know, I've got to move with the times and all of this rubbish. Well, then I, I got a question for you. To, to yeah. what extent have you, do you feel you've had success in divorcing yourself, maintaining yourself separate from those social indoctrinations a hundred percent you aren't really <laughs> yes because well because i i'm i'm ridiculously stubborn and i nothing gets through i've got like a kind of a cultural even though kind of being aware of simon cole and kim kardashian notwithstanding um even though i don't actually know really know what it is that they do you know i've Something nefarious and foul, no doubt. Probably sacrificing <laughs> virgins or something. I don't know. That would actually be that would actually be interesting if they did that. No, they're just it's just ugly money, vulgarity, and shit. No, um, I, I, it's, I've got a really, really strong firewall. I won't watch anything. I won't listen to anything. I won't read anything. You know that film that everyone is raving about. Ten years later, I'll watch it. And oh, that's a great film. And this, that, that old thing. Mm-hmm. You know, don't believe the hype. Just you have to resist. You have to really, really. You have to build up the mother of all firewalls. Have you cultivated that? Have you cultivated that in yourself or did it grow naturally or have you always been like that? Both, both. My life experiences reinforced it. My life experiences from the get go taught me that like you have to protect your spark. You have to protect your integrity. Otherwise, it'll be knocked out of you or it'll be coaxed out of you or it'll be charmed out of you. But it'll be reduced and you'll, you know, it'll be gone. Whatever it is that you have, you have to protect. Gavin, that's great. Um, now, before we uh, take a break, can you give us an idea where people can go to view your artwork and just find out more about you? Uh, if they, the best thing to do is to Google search Sand Snowman. That's Sand, like Sandman and Snowman. Sand Snowman. There's a website, Sand Snowman at Wix.com. There's um, some Facebook stuff. Uh, that's probably the best way to find my work, to find examples of my work. Um, I have some stuff at Fine Art America as well and um, a couple of other. You know, you tend, to, you tend to sign up with websites and then forget about it. But I'd say to go with my website or to, to um, check out my Facebook page. That's probably the best way. But the Facebook page probably more, more, is probably a better way, and that would just be Sense Snowman. Um, because I, 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 don't, I don't really update my, my website that often, really. so. But people can contact me there if they want. Thank you for listening to Hour One of Jesse War Radio. We hope that you have enjoyed this programme and found it informative. Stay tuned and check back each Friday for a new episode. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar, or one word. Members can access Hour Two of all shows in the Members Archive at jessiewar.com. If you haven't yet considered becoming a member of Jesse War Radio, please click on the subscribe link in the top navigation bar at jessiewar.com, where you can register for access to the members' archive, where both hours of all shows are available. 
Jesse War Radio is where we keep on peering further and further behind the veil of esoteric iconology and symbolism with a new show every Friday. Farewell until next time.